Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 15th of June, just uh, after one o'clock. Welcome to uh, UK Call News. Welcome, Patrick Henningsen from uh, 21st Century War. It's great to be with you, Mike. Maybe messed that up, but anyway, let's keep going. And we've got Vanessa Bailey with us today as well, which is uh, wonderful news. So uh, we're going to get straight on with Rwanda. And uh, well, of course, as many people will know, sorry, we'll just uh, stop that. As many people will know, uh, the UK Home Office has had the plan to send people coming to the UK uh, migrants off to Rwanda to do their uh, screenings to decide whether they are uh, welcome in the UK or not. Uh, and of course, this has uh, created quite a furore. Um, so the first flight was due to take place. It was stopped at the uh, last minute by the uh, European uh, Court of Human Rights uh, because a case was taken there of an Iraqi national. Um, and uh, so the ECHR granted uh, an interim measure uh, to stop that flight taking off. Uh, the government says they're going to pursue this, keep going with it. There's going to be a second flight. Um, uh, but of course, as uh, we might expect, it has caused all kinds of uh, furore in the media. So this was the mail today. It's time we kick these uh, bastards into touch, uh, according to a Tory MP. Uh, and he, he's talking about the European uh, Court of Human Rights. Uh, this ECHR, of course, nothing to do with the EU, which is why the UK is still a signatory to it. Uh, but what's this really about, Patrick, uh, aside from uh, the Home Office's uh, method of dealing with the uh, the migration issue? Uh, it has a lot to do with this as well, the uh, the new a modern Bill of Rights, this Bill of Rights that uh, the Tory, various flavours of Tory administration have been trying to get through for, well, since 2010, really, is when they started uh, this talk of a new Bill of Rights. Uh, and removing uh, the UK from its obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, which, which we've been part of since, I think, 1951 or so. Um, and, uh, well, basically, we have too many rights, Patrick, and we need a few more obligations uh, as far as the uh, British government is concerned. So they're using this uh, pretty cynically, I think, to uh, to drive uh, support for their, their new solution uh, and replace the uh, European Convention. Well, the question is, what, what's the last backstop? Is the last backstop going to be, uh, you know, the High Court in the UK, or is it going to be uh, a Human Rights Court in Brussels? Now, um, that could be a, a Brexit-related question, but then that also comes down to this question: the amount of draconian legislation that we've seen successive governments trying to ram through, uh, including most recently. Um, and there's quite a few of them. It's not just one bill. It's not just one piece of legislation. Um, then that asks the, that begs the question, Mike: um, Is is belonging to the Convention on European Human Rights a good thing uh, for for British people? Do, will they be able to appeal to a higher power or a higher court? And so th this is an de ongoing debate. In an ideal world, you'd like to say no, but. We don't live in an ideal world. Uh, no, we don't. Uh, Vanessa, I realize I'm springing this on you, but have you got any thoughts on, on this subject? No, I mean, only to say that, as, as Patrick said, you know, the extraordinary number of bills that are kind of going under the radar of various wars and hotspots in the world um, that are um, increasingly draconian, increasingly oppressive and to totalitarian. Yes. Okay, well... Uh, Okay, let's move on then, Patrick, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and we have, uh, well, a new update on this from you. Sure, we'll just get an update on where things are at currently uh, with regards to the conflict in Ukraine. Ukraine and NATO 
versus Russia. Let's just take a look. Well, actually, before we take a look at, at this, we'll have a look at the, uh, the situation of uh, the Ukrainian military apparently starting to shell civilians in Donetsk. And this is uh, uh, quite a significant story, Patrick, if it's true. It certainly seems to be true. Uh, you've heard from people on the ground that there's shelling going on from the Ukrainian military side. But of course, this is what the uh, Russians have been accused of. Uh, and yet it seems to be the case that uh, there's major shelling going on from the Ukrainian side. Uh, why would they be doing this? Is this just spite? Is it uh, making sure that as they have been forced to withdraw by the Russians, uh, they are basically leaving a wasteland behind? Well, we can answer some of those questions in a minute, but I think there's no question that it's going on. Um, that's just beyond any sort of uh, doubt at the moment. There's just too much reporting that's going on. The problem, if you're living in this country, is that the government has taken it upon himself to uh, to to ban and cancel any Russian media. So you can't actually see um, any coverage that's not being covered by the BBC, for instance. Well, that's exactly right. So we put this back on screen. This is NDTV, this is New Delhi television. So we, right from the beginning of this, we've been uh, highlighting the fact that actually the Indian media has been covering it uh, reasonably in a reasonably balanced way, the whole Ukrainian situation. I had to go to India to get this headline. I could have got it from TASS or a Russian source as well. Uh, but in the UK, there's nothing. So actual war crimes are being committed um, in, in this conflict, and you're not allowed to see it if you're in the West. Right. The media is completely ignoring it. There's a blackout, basically. Um, so, so let's look at what the uh, Russian embassy in the UK said. Uh, they issued, tweeted out a statement uh, yesterday. Uh, we witnessed a dramatic increase in Ukrainian forces shelling of the city of Donetsk. Uh, and uh, they're saying six hours of shelling, killing five, wounding 33. Uh, the intensity uh, on the peaceful city and other towns of DPR amounts to full-fledged and pur uh, purposeful military operation. Uh, they're discussing war crimes. Uh, and they're saying that they have repeatedly called upon the British government to exercise caution and respect to its own export control standards when supplying arms to Ukraine. These calls have fallen on deaf ears. The latest events show it's time for the UK to assume full responsibility for its short-sighted policy. Do you think that's a fair enough statement? Um, I think it's actually a very cautious and not going far enough statement um, based on what we've seen the last 48 hours. Uh, it's beyond any doubt that any country in the West who's arming especially uh, the United States with the howitzer guns and ammunition, those are being used to indiscriminately target civilians. So th that means all the NATO countries that are supplying those weapons are uh, complicit in war crimes. There's, there's legally, that's, um, Russia has a very strong case. Yes. There. Uh, okay, well, you were, we were going to talk about, uh, you were saying that RT, of course, people aren't allowed to see in this country. We do have a clip from RT now. Yeah, this is from Donetsk. This is Roman Kosarov and also Eva Bartlett's, uh, the independent Canadian journalist, is featured in this as well. This is a longer report. It's about sort of 10 minutes. We chopped it down just to give you the essentials. But I think from this report, you'll be able to get a good idea visually uh, and also what's going on on the ground. Let's, let's have a look at that. Several people were killed and scores wounded as a result of Ukrainian uh, shelling on several districts, uh, districts of the city of uh, Donetsk. Uh, five people have been killed, including an 11-year-old boy and uh, his mother who were at a market. Uh, a couple of vendors died there as well. 
Uh, besides that, a lot of uh, damage to civilian infrastructure in the city of Donetsk. Uh, a gas uh, pipeline was destroyed as, as well as a fuel uh, depot. Several houses, uh, m multiple apartments, uh, uh, buildings, uh, cars. Uh, there was uh, fumes of black smoke all over the city of Donetsk on Monday as it was shelled for uh, continuously for a period of at least uh, two hours. People were hiding in the basements. Uh, yours truly also was right in the center of the city and as the shelling started it was very close to me so we had to go and hide uh, in the basements uh, as well. Uh, also the uh, head of the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, Denis uh, Pushilin, uh, well he said that this is also very unprecedented the way Donetsk is being shelled uh, recently and uh, here is his statement. The enemy has literally crossed all the lines. They use prohibited methods of warfare. Residential and central districts of Donetsk are shelled. Other cities and towns of the Donetsk People's Republic are also under fire. Uh, well, this is uh, certainly unprecedented. The whole city of uh, Donetsk was... Uh, uh, shaking on Monday, but it's not only here uh, that uh, people, civilians continue to die, it's uh, along the entire front line in the Donetsk People's Republic. People are continuously being uh, wounded and uh, killed as Ukrainian military continue terrorizing civilians. Where is Western media reaction? All those BBC World, Reuters World, AFP etc. who were shouting about damage to maternity hospital in Mariupol used by Ukrainian nationalists as a firing position. Ukraine is deliberately targeting civilians. Will we hear a word of condemnation? I'm now joined uh, live here at the Maternity Ward with uh, Yeva Bartlett, an independent uh, Canadian journalist uh, who's been covering events in Donbass and uh, Syria for the last uh, 15 years. Uh, Yeva, thank you for joining us today. Well, first of all, we just heard from the represent Russian representative at the UN that uh, this situation is being underreported. You personally uh, have seen this uh, both in Syria and uh, here in Donetsk as well. Your opinion about uh, why this has been underreported by the Western media. Yeah, um, I'll also just note it's uh, even the UN itself is underreporting it in the sense that while uh, the UN um, Secretary General declared it a, a clear violation of international law, he also described it as extremely troubling. Now, just imagine if this maternity hospital was in Kiev or some other Ukrainian uh, city, he would have used much stronger language, I would say. But uh, the underreporting or the clear non-reporting at all of such uh, bombings is consistent with what. Western media, corporate media reporting on matters Ukraine, Don, sorry, Donetsk and Syria. For example, in 2013, the largest uh, cancer treatment hospital in, in the Middle East, uh, the Kindi Hospital, was destroyed. It was truck bombed by FSA uh, terrorists, and that was underreported. In 2016, uh, a maternity hospital in Aleppo, the Debit Maternity Hospital, was uh, internally destroyed by a rocket which landed outside and exploded a car. Three women were killed, many more were injured. And I went to that hospital after the fact and talked with the director, um, and uh, I saw for my, you know, with my own eyes how badly destroyed it was, and it got no reporting in the corporate media. The Dara State Hospital uh, was badly damaged, and numerous wards were out of commission um, because of terrorist bombing and sniping. And again, no Western media reported on this because it doesn't fit their narrative. Their narrative is solely to vilify, uh, in this case, it would be to vilify the Russian forces and the Donbass forces, in the case of Syria, to vilify uh, Russia and Syria.
<clears throat> so, well, that's pretty clear. Yeah, well, we just showed you a clip from RT. So according to the UK government, that's Russian disinformation and cannot be allowed to be shown to the British public because you're not mature enough or smart enough to determine uh, what you're looking at. So my question is, uh, if Mariana Spring or one of these disinformation specialists is watching from the BBC, can you please fact check that RT segment? It's very dense. It's got a lot of information in it. And if you find anything that's not factual, please get in touch with us and let us know because we would also like to condemn RT. We're, yes. we're dying to, but we just can't find any way to do it at the moment. Uh, okay, so the question then is from the Washington Post, uh, is Ukraine running out of ammunition? Well, the, well, the question is, why are they indiscriminately shelling uh, Donetsk? Okay, so if they're running out of ammunition, is this out of frustration? And the argument could be made that it is. Here's Zelensky here begging for money and weapons on somebody's Zoom screen. But let's take a look at when the Post says this, around 200 Ukrainian soldiers are now being killed every day. I said 300 two weeks ago. Right. Okay, so uh, being killed every day, uh, Zelensky told the BBC, that's serious. Do the math. It's not going to be long till they're at 30,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers, okay? And, uh, and they go on to say as many 1,000 Ukrainians are being taken out of the fight every day, including those who are injured. That's really important too. What does that mean? That means that not only are they losing soldiers, they're losing the, the quality of the soldiers is going down rapidly. Right. So again, desperation on the part of Zelensky uh, and his gang. And <laughs> I don't know what else to call them because they're running around in camos all the time. But uh, they're so desperate. Take a look at this. Zelensky's National Service recruitment drive, the latest one. Let's go to Odessa, literally on the beach. Here we are in Odessa, and they are looking for able-bodied men between the age of 18 and 60, uh, because they're uh, here's one. They're trying to they're signing them up. Any guy that they see that's not serving is going to get signed up, and even. Uh, grandfathers as well uh, are eligible. So, I mean, <laughs> talk about desperation. Mm. This is where Ukraine is right now. So, yeah, running out of ammo, running out of soldiers. The morale is at an all-time low. So what are we seeing in Donbass? Is that them lashing out? Um, I don't know how long they could sustain that. And by the way, uh, Russian airstrikes are probably going to escalate. Um, as a result of these attacks, because Russia has no choice. They've committed reinforcements now uh, to the DPR. So is that, is that some sort of type of strategy by NATO to draw Russia in for more airstrikes? This, uh, it's hard to tell what's, what is exactly is going on here. Um, so, Vanessa, if, uh, if Ukraine is uh, having to uh, comb the beaches for uh, males to take part in this uh, fight, still they do have uh, Western uh, mercenaries at, uh, to use. Yeah, I, I, just quickly going back to the um, shelling of Donetsk report also, there are um, strong uh, evidence available now that France has been supplying cluster munitions for use against uh, civilians uh, in Donetsk. And that is effectively a war crime. Of course, we'd seen that um, very prevalent in Yemen, particularly in northern Yemen, uh, U.S. cluster munitions used by the uh, Saudi coalition against the Yemeni uh, people and civilians, in, particularly in the north of Yemen. So just another point to make that, that what is being thrown at the civilians in Donetsk is uh, absolute supreme war crime, which is being ignored by Western media and officials, of course. 
Um, so what we're going to do today is to look at uh, the various, uh, some more of the British mercenaries fighting uh, alongside the, the Nazi battalions and the uh, Ukrainian forces uh, against uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. This guy, Daniel Burke, this report is a BBC report from 2020. Um, Burke was a former uh, paratrooper parachute regiment in 2007 to 2009. In 2017 and 18, at the same time, if you remember, as Mesa Gifford, who has established the equivalent to the White Helmets uh, in Ukraine in Lviv, the headquarters of the NATO military trainers um, and recruits coming in from abroad. Uh, and, um, and, and of course, of the various Nazi uh, fascist battalions in Ukraine. So in 2017-18, Burke was fighting uh, with the Kurdish Contras in the northeast of Syria. He came back to the UK, I believe, in 2019. He was then intending to go back to Syria, and he was arrested and uh, imprisoned for eight months before his case went to trial. It was then mysteriously dropped. Now, from 2016 onwards, there were a huge number of these trials, particularly the most prominent one that people should remember is the one against Mozambique, um, who had been in Syria training and um, assisting the various terrorist armed groups, particularly in northern Syria. So he'd entered via Turkey. Um, his case was dropped, I believe, as was uh, Mozambique's case, because it would have revealed uh, the involvement of MI6 and security agencies in uh, the transit of these mercenaries to Syria in their fighting alongside the various uh, UK, US coalition uh, proxies inside Syria. One interesting point to make that, that we kind of discovered today is in 2018 in Deir also fighting alongside Burke and Mesa Gifford, there was a Dutch national and neo-Nazi, Sjord Heger, who was killed, as I said, in Deir um, who had previously been fighting with the Nazi brigades against Donetsk and Lugansk. So this was almost a, a, a flip. Rather than going from Syria to Ukraine, this guy had come from Ukraine to Syria and had been fighting alongside the Kurdish Contras and people like Daniel Burke and Mesa Gifford. So he could have potentially had a hand in persuading them to go on um, to Ukraine. The other interesting thing is uh, this uh, Dutch national died fighting the Syrian Arab army uh, and Iranian defense uh, militia on the ground in the northeast fighting. They were fighting ISIS. He was killed fighting them. So I'll just uh, leave that one there. Uh, yes, because that, that's very interesting, because Daniel Burke had claimed yeah. he had gone to Syria to, in order to fight ISIS. And yet what, what you've just told us is that, in fact, they ended up yeah. fighting uh, the Syrian Arab army. Well, certainly one of his comrades was killed fighting the Syrian Arab army and Iranian forces there that were genuinely fighting ISIS. So, yes, it must raise questions. So now uh, fast forward to today. Um, of course, the terrorist connection for Burke would have been to the PKK, a pre previously designated terrorist organization that was kind of rebranded into the YPG by the American coalition. <clears throat> so here you can see uh, Daniel Burke, who again is claiming to be raising money for humanitarian activities inside Ukraine. His cover photo is clearly military. We'll come on to that in a minute. 
His profile picture is calling, obviously, for the release of Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner. Sean Pinner, of course, a sniper uh, from Plymouth, I think, Mike, who uh, had been fighting against uh, the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk for some time. Uh, both are now, of course, sentenced to death by the DPR. Um, but if we continue on, we'll see, um, I think, the uh, Dark Angels logo, which is the organization that Daniel Burke has established. Now, I mean, this is where it, it actually becomes a little bit, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's just satire. The name Dark Angels comes from the Games Workshop sci-fi miniatures war game Warhammer 40,000. And apparently they're a chapter of the Imperial Space Marines. Um, it's it's hard not to sort of laugh at that. Um, however, the the three three um, there's been a number of interpretations. Three three is generally known as uh, the logo for KKK. K being the eleventh Ku Klux Klan. K being the eleventh letter of the alphabet. So eleven plus eleven plus eleven thirty three. So that's one theory we've got on that. And the H. We, we don't really have any solid theories on what that might represent. Um, <clears throat> then let's have a look at some of the photos taken again from Daniel Burke's Facebook page of supplies uh, that this group is receiving. And you will see there that the goods have been received from the US government and it's stamped on there for military use. Obviously, property, uh, government property, commercial resale is unlawful. So um, the US, Fire its various um, allies on the ground in, in Eastern Europe is supplying these mercenary groups uh, with equipment and food. Now, here you have the photo was that, that was his cover photo um, with the headline, which you can't see there, four-man uh, reconnaissance mission. And what the guy is holding second from the right is a javelin a weapon system. Again, we'll come on to that. Um, and on uh, Burke's Facebook page, he posts um, a comment underneath that photo where he says the jav has been fired. I don't know if you can move on to that, Mike. Yep. Yep, there you go. Um, and then on to the next photo, which will just show the javelin uh, system. Of course, uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, raking in uh, the profit in Ukraine with the uh, uptick in supply of weapons from uh, America and other NATO member states. Then if we move on, we'll see another picture on Burke's page. Bear in mind that, that his fundraiser is claiming predominantly that this is for humanitarian assistance for the people of Ukraine under attack by Russia. His, his tagline, not mine. Here again on Taken from his social media pages, you have another picture of the crew that he's fighting with. Here you have uh, Burke previously in uh, Syria in the northeast, uh, of course, um, upholding the uh, Rojava concept, which exists only in the imagination of the US, Israeli and UK backed Kurdish separatists. And then the next photo taken from his Facebook page again, uh, Burke standing in front of one of the oil fields, which of course are occupied by the Kurdish uh, Contras that are stealing and siphoning Syrian oil out of Syria and selling it into Iraq, into Turkey, into Israel via 
various um, contractors. Um, then this is taken directly from the fundraiser itself. As you can see, it initially talks about um, humanitarian assistance, or it does earlier on in the fundraiser. But here, actually, they are quite open. We have been training Marines, Army, and uh, Territorial Defense Forces while supplying them with much needed equipment and basic supplies. Now, the fact that they are um, advertising the fact that they have a, a, a javelin system available to them gives an idea of what equipment they are receiving for um, these military organizations. Um, here we have another member of the Dark Angels. On Twitter, he's known as Max Zadi. On Facebook, Maxim Barat. And you'll recognize him on the right there in the photo that was Daniel Burke's uh, cover photograph. Um, and again, if we move on, you'll see that he has on his Facebook page uh, an image of the Javelin weapon system. It's a little bit difficult to understand his um, post above that. There is some intimation that it's coming in through France. And of course, I was chatting with uh, journalist Steve Sweeney yesterday, and he reminded me that, that France had lost a number of Javelin systems in Libya, which were picked up um, by the so-called rebels, and France then claimed that they were defective, which was a wonderful way of getting themselves out of being caught out supplying arms um, to military factions in Libya, of course. Um, so you have uh, Max Azadi, oh, sorry, you then have them training. Um, this is the 28th division of the Ukrainian armed forces. So I've been told reliably it's not one of the far right nationalist battalions. It is um, a, a national armed forces battalion. Um, maybe the audience can help with the next uh, logo that is attached to the Dark Angels, which is this strange use of a black spot tattoo on the hands, Mike, if you can go forward, um, which I've seen on uh, the social media pages again there on the left, Daniel Burke showing uh, the black spot. Um, on Maxime Barrett's page, he is saying it, represents the full stop. I presume that means the full stop of the Russian invasion. Um, <clears throat> now, if we look at uh, Maxime Barrett's, uh, who he's following on Twitter, it's an extraordinary array of uh, Ukrainian officials, defense officials, military officials, media officials, or media representatives, but including Elon Musk, of course, who supplied uh, the Starlink system to the Ukrainian forces, um, and um, Oz Katerji, who people will perhaps remember from his support of the terrorist groups, particularly Al-Qaeda and the White Helmets, uh, an Al-Qaeda auxiliary uh, created by British intelligence and funded by the US coalition in Syria to produce the propaganda to demonize the Syrian government and allies. Um, now, I, what I want everyone to look at, um, so bear in mind that this organization is loosely calling itself uh, humanitarian relief. So it's modeling itself, I would say, to some extent also on the white helmets, akin to Mesa Gifford. But let's have a look at their um, introduction video.
I think that doubles up basically as a recruitment campaign for mercenaries to come into um, Ukraine. Um, apparently, this was a report in uh, German media, I think, yesterday. Uh, 55 countries are sending uh, mercenaries to Ukraine right now, the majority coming from America and uh, the UK. Um, but just another quick uh, development today from uh, the Dark Angels themselves. If we look at the Twitter page of the International Volunteers, which I assume to be connected to Mesa Gifford's uh, recruitment drive, which he established uh, after the 24th of February at the behest of uh, Zelensky. Um, if you look on the left, uh, Mesa Gifford himself is celebrating the claimed, and I say claimed because I would like to get audience reaction when they watch the video of the alleged destruction of a Russian tank. But note the um, racist language here, the number of killed and wounded orcs. So Mesa Gifford and these are international volunteers, effectively the Dark Angels, Daniel Burke, Maxine Barrett and their comrades, are using the, the racist language that has been prevalent since the beginning of this war, um, uh, particularly against the Russian people uh, generally, and of course against the people of Donetsk and Lugansk themselves, been targeted by many of these mercenaries um, since 2014. Um, now, I, I've sent the following video, which shows uh, this group uh, led by Daniel Burke handling the Javelin weapon system. And a couple of people have actually come back to me laughing and saying, well, these guys aren't going to last long. Now, I'm not a weapons expert. I don't claim to be. But if we just um, watch how the guy is, is carrying the weapon system, bearing in mind, I know there's no sound on here, but um, they are presumably not far from Russian positions right now. So now we have a picture of uh, a Russian vehicle. It's very unclear whether it is a tank or not. Now watch when the guy fires. As I said, I'm no weapon expert, um, but the people that I have sent it to, just a couple of people have, have basically said to me, these guys are not going to last long. Um, that's their uh, expert opinion. And bear in mind that they hit, they hit the vehicle, they now come under fire and they scarper, basically. And then suddenly we cut to a shot of them walking with a plume of smoke in the distance. Uh, and we're kind of supposed to believe that it's them that managed to target and, and hit that vehicle. I kind of, I, I don't know, I, I will suspend my belief on that. Um, Steve Sweeney, by the way, did contact the International Volunteers Organization to question why they were using such racist language. He was immediately blocked on Twitter, so they clearly don't appreciate um, questions or anyone trying to get their opinion on what we're talking about here today. Um, but, uh, I mean, uh, so we have an organization which is claiming to be raising money for humanitarian purposes, is clearly also involved in the military operation itself. And once again, we have this, this uh, 
I mean, what are they attempting to do? Uh, set up a narrative where, whereby any attack on them becomes an attack on humanitarians? Is that is that part of why they're doing this? Well, I mean, in, in their case, I would say that's going to be a very difficult one to sell. I would say that they are more serving a purpose as a recruitment agency when you watch their introductory video. I mean, you know, the music, the, 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 the filming, the style, um, I would say it's a kind of hip uh, fascist um, recruitment video um, appealing to uh, the various uh, people in the UK EU and US, and and former mercenaries, of course, other mercenaries who were fighting potentially in northeast uh, Syria to come and join them. Yeah. But as I said, um, you know, it's a mixture of distaste at, at how these people are presenting themselves, the racist uh, language that they're using. But then there has to be a degree of, of ridicule um, at their lack of professionalism. And actually, there was one comment on Daniel Burke's page where he does actually, no, I think it was Maxine Barrett, sorry, where he admits for the first month it was a mess. It was total chaos. So that, that was a kind of interesting insight. And, and that echoes what many people have said, particularly mercenaries that have escaped and managed to get back to the safety of their own countries. Yeah, any thoughts? No, no, I just was also to add to what she said about the French weapon systems. She was right to point out um, that sort of cluster type munition, the Caesar self-propelled gun, um, very, very dangerous. Um, it, it approximates uh, the uh, det detonation over the target in the air, uses uh, radar and things like that. And it's designed for maximum uh, uh, damage. And certainly it's not anything you'd want to use um, around any civilian area. And France has unloaded its javelins, everything that it bought from the United States years ago in terms of javelins, it's literally shipped all of those javelins to the Ukraine as well. So that might explain why uh, this gentleman with the French connection is running around with javelins. They would have come from France, actually, um, possibly. Well, let's have a look at uh, what's going on with NATO then, because uh, obviously weapons supply is a big part of what's uh, happening with the Ministers of Defence meeting, which is taking place today and tomorrow. And uh, the Lovely Lloyd is there, of course, uh, and uh, he's saying that uh, that this meeting is going to be an, oppor an important opportunity to gather our growing group of partners from around the world to ensure that we're providing Ukraine with what Ukraine needs right now uh, and to look ahead to ensure that we're keeping helping Ukraine to build and sustain robust defences so that Ukraine will be able to defend itself in the coming months and years. The rhetoric doesn't change, but they keep pumping the weapons in. And as I mean, one of the points that we've made this morning is they're going into people that are untrained uh, because increasingly uh, Ukraine is suffering such losses that there can't be trained personnel left to deploy them properly. No, it's not being done properly. And by the way, the rhetoric is escalating. I think one, one of the Brookings Institute uh, brains was talking about we need to be prepared to uh, supply them with weapons for five, 10, maybe 20 years. Mm. They're talking about this as, as basically a permanent conflict over the decades. I mean, this is just crazy. Yes. Uh, well, Reuters uh, reporting here that uh, Macron in France uh, is saying Ukraine president will have to negotiate with Russia at some point. So the French and actually the Germans as well are attempting to get uh, uh, Zelensky shifted on this issue. Um, now, one government which is particularly upset about this is the Polish government. Uh, they are rapidly anti-Russian, as we've made the point uh, many times before. Um, and uh, so here is uh, the former Polish foreign minister, uh, Radosław Sikorski, uh, he's currently an MEP, 
for the uh, a Polish MEP. Um, and uh, well, he's saying that the West has the right to give Ukraine nuclear warheads so that it can protect its independence. He, in fact, is calling for this very strongly. Uh, this uh, didn't go down too well with the Russians. Uh, this uh, is a telegram group um, for, I can't remember the name of the, the Russian uh, uh, government official. But anyway, the, the, the statement is here that Sikorsky is provoking a nuclear conflict uh, in the center for Europe. He does not think about the future of either Ukraine or Poland. If his proposals are implemented, these countries will disappear as well as Europe. Uh, it's because of people like Sikorsky that it's necessary to liberate Ukraine, not only from the Nazi ideology, but also to demilitarize it, ensuring the country's non-nuclear status. So the Russians are uh, particularly upset about that particular comment. And of course, we've been bombarded, Patrick, with with media headlines uh, in the UK that uh, you know Russia threatening nuclear war and all this kind of thing. It's actually not Russia that's been taking this strident position. Well, it came out of Zelensky's mouth in February. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of, um, you know, across the red line as far as Moscow is concerned, uh, you know, the president of the Ukraine talking about we need nuclear weapons. And you have to also point out uh, Zaporozhia, where the largest nuclear power facility is in Europe, in Europe is located there. And there's enough enriched uranium uh, uh, stored there for to, to start a, wep, a, wep, a weapons, weapons program. program. So the, the, the justification for Russia in terms of national security is already baked in to the situation. Um, so the, uh, Ukraine, protecting Ukraine's independence. Uh, are they independent? When, when, when have they been independent? Since, not since not 2014, 14, yeah. that's for sure. So, I mean, that's just ridiculous. But um, Poland is increasingly sounding schizophrenic, um, paranoid, and just completely unhinged. Um, and I don't know if that's just the leadership, Mike, or if that's the whole body politic. I'm not sure. It's mainly the leadership of this particular political party that's in power at the moment. Um, because as we've mentioned before on the program, Patrick, and you mentioned to me again this morning, uh, you know, Kaczynski's brother uh, was on the Smolensk uh, plane crash that killed quite a number of uh, Polish politicians uh, and the Russians, they have blamed the Russians for that since that time. So uh, the, the absolutely rapidly anti-Russian um, and uh, uh, which is why they are 110% on board with the United States and the United Kingdom uh, with respect to Ukraine. Mm. Um, let's just uh, very briefly uh, mention Mali. Uh, and I'm, I'm bringing this on screen uh, so do you know where Mali is in the Sahel. Uh, sort of north of the green part of the Sahel anyway. Uh, and it's, of course, been uh, a war zone since, I think, 2012 now. Uh, it's the Sahel region, as we mentioned many times, is one that the EU considers to be part of its territory. It's its southern neighborhood. It very much wants to have control of this area. Uh, but this uh, war in Mali has been going on since 2012. Uh, it's several insurgent groups involved, but mainly... Uh, uh, a national movement for the liberation of Azawad, M -L -M -N -L -A is the main group. This is the Tuareg people. Um, and uh, they have in turn been backed by an Islamic group called uh, Ansar Dine. Uh, and uh, so uh, the point here is that uh, Mali asked for international help uh, in 2013 to take uh, the northern part of the country back from the separatists. Uh, and the French got involved in that. Then there was a peace deal signed in 2013, another one signed in 2015, because that 2013 peace deal fell apart. But there's been an insurgency going on ever since. And so in the last couple of uh, weeks, 
Uh, we've seen a bomb kill two UN peacekeepers. Uh, so there are lots of, I think there are 13,000 UN peacekeepers in Mali at the moment. Uh, and I think uh, something in the region of 70, 800 of them have been killed so far as a result of, of the, the conflict there. Uh, but then we've got this from UN News, uh, another attack on uh, peacekeepers. So the, the two in the first report were Egyptians and this uh, more recent one was uh, a Jordanian. Um, and well, let's have a look at what the UK has to say about this because uh, James Karaoke uh, was uh, speaking in the Security Council uh, yesterday. He said last time the council met to discuss Mali, reports had just emerged of a massacre in Mura. Hundreds of civilians killed during a counterterrorism operation involving Wagner Group mercenaries. So uh, this is all about, uh, really all about Russian influence in uh, Mali. And let's uh, move on with, the, he went on to say, the report also documents a significant increase in human rights violations by the Malian Defense and Security Forces with the involvement of so-called uh, military elements. And that's Wagner Group again. Uh, members of this council are under no illusions, he said, this is the Russian-backed Wagner Group. Um, so th th this is this is what it's all about, uh, Patrick. But uh, uh, in the meantime, well, of let's, course, it must be the Russians. It, it has to be the Russians. And, and by the way, everything the British ambassador to the UN has been saying since Karen Pierce and Allen, it's all true, right? Right. They've never told a lie on the floor of the United Nations. Never. I mean, they're really, really strict about that. Um, so let's just put one example on screen. Brookings uh, Institute here, R Russia's Wagner Group in Africa influence, commercial concessions, rights violations, and counterinsurgency failure. Uh, let's take a, sh a short quote from this. Since 2006, Putin has sought to rebuild Russia's presence and role in Africa, significantly weakened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Between 2015 and 2019, Moscow signed 19 military collaboration agreements with African governments. The collaboration is focused in large parts on uh, Russian weapons sales. That's what they're claiming. Uh, but again, uh, the criticism of Russia here uh, strangely, there's no criticism of similar uh, agreements with African and, uh, nations and other countries around the world and other arms sales from Western governments. Uh, only UK, US, EU, we're allowed to do that, but uh, the Russians must never do that. Yeah, and, and the involvement of, uh, of contractors and mercenaries who, who aren't normally doing deals with the governments. They're just in there to wreak havoc uh, normally if you're talking about the Blackwater uh, the black waters of the world. Yes. Um, but the w Wagner group is the sort of, it's a real buzzword right now in the U.S. media. So it's like the boogeyman. So they say Wagner, Wagner, and they just keep repeating it. Of course, Wagner is a private militarization. It's literally affixed to the Russian military in a lot of these situations. They're in Syria, they're in Ukraine, they're in other places. So not unlike other countries, but they also have the sort of the highest level um, uh, special forces, veterans of a certain age, of a certain um, experience, mm. and they will insert them into battalions of maybe younger soldiers, some of those people, and they'll help to stiffen up um, the, uh, the battalion, you know, get it up to speed quicker than it would. So they are very handy and useful uh, in those sort of things and for certain operations. This is why the U.S. and Britain use these, uh, these types of groups for just about everything you can imagine. Yes. Yes. Okay. And now sanctions, of course, uh, sanctions continue, but uh, we don't need to worry, Patrick. The British government is right on the button and we're going to deal with uh, food security in the UK. So uh, look at this. This little video uh, is the new uh, government's new food security plan. They're putting food security at the heart of their strategy, apparently, <laughs> um, and, and so on. They're going to maintain current levels of domestic 
uh, food production and they're going to in produce, in, uh, increase production in sectors with biggest opportunities. How, I mean, does, how does that drive with the rewilding? Uh, uh, we're going to come on to that in Does, just one those second. Those two don't really make sense well, together. Well, let's just let's just have a look at that because uh, let's just remind ourselves what the uh, sustainable farming policy is. Uh, because, of course, coming out of the EU as a result of Brexit, uh, then we have to uh, replace the common agricultural policy with something. So direct payments uh, under the common agricultural policy are going to be reduced fairly, starting from the 2021 basic payment scheme. Uh, and money being released uh, used to fund new grants and schemes to boost farm farmers' productivity and reward environmental improvements. And there were three tiers to this. We've mentioned this several times. The Sustainable Farming Initiative Incentive, sorry, the Local Nature Recovery is Tier 2, and Landscape Recovery. So Tier 2 and 3, Mike, are not farming. And, uh, indeed. So, <laughs> so £2.4 billion per year is what the government claimed that they were going to be pushing uh, as a subsidy into farming. Uh, for the, uh, this current parliament. Uh, and they said that each of these three tiers would receive about the same amount of money. So roughly £800 million each for these uh, three tiers. But uh, as a result of Ukraine, uh, possibly, uh, they have decided to abandon their green policies largely. Uh, so they pushed out this uh, uh, blog post uh, future on the Future Farming blog uh, on gov.uk, how we're making sure all farm businesses can fairly access money released from basic payments uh, and we're saying uh, we have not fixed we, we will not have fixed allocations or pillars as they were known whilst we were in the U of money ring fence to different schemes instead we'll learn as we go and find the best ways to manage the overall budget to respond to demand in a way that helps us achieve our intended outcomes this means we will keep the allocation of funding between different schemes under review over time that's that is the key sentence they're going to keep this under review over time. So while they initially said it was going to be 800 million for each tier, uh, they're now saying that for the uh, the rewilding schemes and so on, it's initially going to be 50 million pounds. Uh, and uh, but this is this is going to be under constant review. And the main reason for this, uh, they are saying, is for is because of Ukraine. Uh, at least at least many are saying that's. Uh, because of the Ukraine war. Some are also saying that's because the uh, the country can't really afford green schemes while we're uh, in this situation of cost of living crisis and so on. And others are suggesting uh, that uh, uh, it's because uh, maybe if, if we're being particularly cynical because of uh, the Tiverton Haunton by-election, which of course is a farming area uh, and uh, the, the Tory party uh, have to fight this as a result of uh, the resignation of Neil Parrish for uh, watching porn in the House of Commons. Um, and uh, the Lib Dems in the lead at the moment. So perhaps this is some people are saying this is perhaps a cynical effort to get some support here. But, uh, but that, that policy change, what, what does that mean to farmers if they're used to regular scheduled payments from the EU for what, how many decades, right? Um, for say small to medium sized holdings. And now it's all up in the air. We're going to review it as we go along. It'll create instability and, and also unknowing expectations as to what to expect from that side. So that would disincentivize a lot of small to medium-sized farmers because they're like, where, where do we stand? Well, th this, these are all good points, but it doesn't end there uh, because many people won't be aware of diesel exhaust fluid. Are you aware of diesel exhaust fluid? Uh, no. Well, diesel exhaust fluid is mainly a mixture of water, 60% water or 66% water, 33% urea. Now, urea is, of course, a byproduct of ammonia production, and the main ammonia producer on the planet is Russia. Um, but as a result of green uh, policies, uh, diesel exhaust fluid is required to be added to diesel engines since I think roughly 2016 or so. 
Um, and, uh, and of course, one of the major, well, two of the major uses of this are for transportation of goods, heavy goods vehicles, and the farming industry, uh, tractors, and so on. Uh, but because uh, of the Russian uh, issue, well, this headline here was saying that the worldwide diesel exhaust fluid industry is expected to reach 50 billion by 2027. Well, maybe not, because let's put this one on, diesel exhaust fluid shortage means some diesel users will be paying more. Well, not only that, they may not be using their tractors or their uh, HGVs at all. Um, and uh, so uh, this is uh, AdBlue is the brand name for this stuff in the UK. Uh, and uh, well, we've got some top tips for agricultural machinery, including tractors and combine harvesters. So both tractors and combine harvesters affected by this shortage. Uh, where does that leave the which, government? Which is, a re which is a result of sanctions, right? Absolutely, as a yeah. result of sanctions. So where is that going to leave um, the UK's food security policy, which well, they've well, just they announced today uh, in tatters, it seems? The government has uh, options, don't they? They could either stick with the policy that's running all these industries into the ground that's destroying the economy, uh, or they can ditch it and go back to where they were uh, before the uh, so-called war started. Yes. Uh, it's up to the government. It's not up to God, is it? Or is it up to Mother Nature? Is it up to us, the, the consumers? I don't know. I'm confused. The government doesn't seem to be involved in the, uh, the destiny of the of this situation. Isn't that strange? What can we say? <laughs> We're just, uh, we're just plebs asking questions. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Vanessa, just before we move on, have you got any thoughts on that? No. Okay. No, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. There's no problem. Let's, let's move on. Uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and you'd be very welcome as a UK Column member uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, do... Uh, uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms. Um, you've got a book. I just wanted to uh, plug this. I just got a hold of this uh, wonderful book by Dr. Vernon Coleman. It's called Social Credit, Nightmare on Your Street. And I think that's available now. I haven't read it yet, but I've already read the, uh, the preamble article yeah. that he published. And it's really fascinating, uh, the history of social credit and then where it's heading in, in the future, what, what it could possibly be like. Are we going to adopt Chinese style? policies are not. That's in this book by Dr. Vermin Col Coleman. So we can, I think I can recommend this book. It's, yeah. a, it's definitely a good read. So Super. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on to health issues and monkeypox, Patrick. Monkeypox, that's all the rage, right? That's the big uh, threat, isn't it? So uh, this is what the Washington Post, this was trending uh, just yesterday. So flu cases in June, colds that lead to hospitalizations, how COVID is making common viruses act in unfamiliar ways. So the power of COVID never ceases to amaze us. It can do just amazing things. So, so at the moment, it's changing the way other viruses behave. Is this real science? No. I don't know. I don't think so. It doesn't look like it. So where is this leading us to monkeypox? The big problem with monkeypox now, Mike, is that monkeypox needs to be rebranded. The WHO decided that uh, monkeypox needs to be renamed because of racism concerns. Okay, believe it or not, we're not kidding. This is actually happening. Monkeypox is set to be renamed by the WHO and Dr. Teodros over concerns that it could stoke racism and stigmatization. Why is that? The WHO is overseeing a panel of 30 scientists. They wrote a letter calling for monkeypox 
to be renamed. And the thing that I'm upset about is nobody's talking about what that new name is going to be. But they did that with uh, the, what was the other one? The Indian variant? Remember, uh, it got rebranded to Delta. That's right. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. So here we go. This virus being African is not only inaccurate, but it also is discriminatory and stigmatizing. To what? To the virus or to Africa? I can't work that out. It's really strange. So wokeism has definitely uh, taken hold of the WHO. I, this is not satire. This is actually happening, uh, happening yes. right now as we speak. So this is also happening here. The EU is purchasing 111 thousand vaccines as monkeypox spreads across the continent, uh, so they say. So they're basically raising the alarm as the virus continues to spread uh, into the northern hemisphere. And they've got the picture there below of the African uh, hand there with what looks like it could be some blisters or monkeypox. We're not sure. I did an image reverse search on that before the show. That's actually a, a, from 1997 or something like that. Right. It's quite an old photograph. It's not recent. So it's allegedly a monkeypox case from many years ago. Could they not find a recent photograph? Is that problematic for them? No, they couldn't because monkeypox is so rare. It's so rare. Nobody has any actual photographs of it yet. Right. But we've got a lot of positive test results. We'll go on to that in a minute. So that's all the rage now. Vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. Uh, and here, I dodged COVID and but caught monkeypox, a Londoner's surreal ordeal. So again, just out of the out of the fi uh, frying pan and into the fire mm -hmm. there. So th these sort of fear-mongering stories, there's no end to these uh, right now. Just to keep the alert level high, uh, the media probably feels it's important to do that, to keep the threat level high. Um, so let's take a look at monkeypox. We don't know a lot about monkeypox, so uh, Mystery Theater, this edition is going to be the origins of monkeypox. Let's find out where monkeypox actually came from because a lot of people don't know. It's all a bit mysterious and murky here. So let's go into some science mystery theater and find out. Now I'm uh, looking at the research on this monkeypox mythology. This is an article by Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey, husband and wife team from New Zealand. And this is a fantastic, actually a stunning uh, bit of research here in terms of scientific and biological research you see a lot of familiar actors in here. So I'm going to point people to this article. That's on Dr. Sam Bailey's website. There's a URL as well that you can visit. But uh, obviously there's links to all of the CDC papers and the research that charts the history of monkeypox and the science as well. But let's take a closer look at that. The origins of monkeypox. What do we know about monkeypox? First discovered in 1958, two outbreaks of pox-like diseases in colonies of monkeys kept for research, first human cases, recorded in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In humans, the symptoms of monkeypox are similar, but milder than the symptoms of smallpox. So the implication is that these are two related uh, diseases or related uh, viruses. So they go on, in Africa, monkeypox has been shown to cause death in as many as one in 10 people who contract a disease. That's an alleged case fatality rate, I suppose, of 10%, you've probably seen that, yes, wide, seen that widely, widely quoted. Reported, yes. So that is uh, where that comes from. It's from the CDC's document. There's a URL at the bottom of the page if you want to screenshot that and learn more from the CDC's documents themselves or get it from uh, Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey's uh, article. But historically, monkeypox has been virtually unheard of in the first world countries. And rare cases are usually in people that have recently arrived from Africa. Very rare. So no one's 
really seen any outbreaks. I think there's been one alleged outbreak before this latest scare. Well, there were two in the UK, 2017 and 2018, but it was two or three people in each case. So it really wasn't an outbreak. You couldn't describe it as an outbreak. Yeah, well, we couldn't back then, but now it's now an, out yes, okay, it's, now it's an outbreak. Two people is an outbreak now, yeah. apparently. So only recorded outbreaks of monkeypox in the first world. The main one we're talking about here is 2003 in the United States. We'll break that down in a second. Cases declared in six states said to be caused by African prairie dogs, or these are rodents, yeah. uh, we presume, that were imported to Texas from Ghana. So apparently they went from monkeys to, to prairie, uh, prairie dogs, African prairie dogs, and then somehow jumped uh, to humans. So that's the uh, claim there by the CDC, who are the keeper of the history of monkeypox. So the CDC has the origins of monkeypox story copyrighted, and they own this story. So person-to-person -person spread of the virus is thought to occur principally between the uh, orophageal uh, exudates, I guess that's inflamed tonsils, and although it's clear that this has never been scientifically established. So that's a hypothesis. So again, we're, we're taking this directly from the academic literature that's cited in the CDC uh, report, and that is the story of the origins. So here's where it gets really interesting. The virus is thought to have been transmitted from African animals, monkeys to rats or prairie dogs uh, to humans. So individuals had illnesses uh, onset within 21 days after exposure of the monkeypox virus, alleged monkeypox virus, were classified as having a probable case of infection. So it just starts to get murky. So conclusion, preliminary conclusion here, loose criteria and effect, they're maybe being accused here of pathologizing a normal state mm -hmm. of illness or could be a number of other things. The symptoms tend to mirror about a hundred different other illnesses. So it's very, like COVID, it's very difficult to distinguish between uh, or to say specifically what you might have uh, because there's so many other things that have the same thing. Now this is very interesting. The CDC's weekly reports in 2003, this is the big outbreak, stated that out of 71 cases, only two patients, both children, had serious clinical illnesses. Both of these patients have, had recovered. This was back in 2003. That doesn't look like a case fatality rate of 10%. It doesn't, and this is the problem. This, that, that's the, connect, the disconnect on this. But, right. but what about the case fatality rate? In Africa, they don't match up. So this is the last big outbreak. So everything that we, our health agencies, say and know about monkeypox is based on the 2003 uh, outbreak in the United States that was chronicled and documented by the CDC. So that's literally our whole story on monkeypox is based on that. We're breaking down that story for you right now. And we're asking the question, um, is this a real thing? Um, is this a real uh, sort of pandemic uh, potential uh, pathogen? So let's go a little bit further. Individuals who contracted the monkeypox uh, were infected by prairie dogs, allegedly. There's no human to human transmission was documented between these people. That is very odd. So we're told it's very contagious. It's spreading across the Northern Hemisphere. We all need to get vaccinated. And here is the last major outbreak on record. This is the science and no human to human transmission recorded during that okay. time. All came from the prairie dogs. Very strange, isn't it? Anyway, it gets weirder. They admitted that in, uh, to including that the analysis were limited to incomplete reporting or recall of information by patients. And because of the retrospective nature of this study, we were unable to obtain highly detailed data. The science just gets weaker 
and weaker the deeper you dig into this. And Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey have done a brilliant job of this. Now, here is the evidence. This is, the CDC has provided this electron micrograph static image of what is dead tissue. And they claim that uh, that's on the right-hand side, that's monkeypox. And on the left-hand side is some mature virons. That's basically uh, electro, um, uh, electro uh, micrograph photography, yeah. okay? So, and so can you really draw any conclusions about the biological role based on these imaged particles? And the answer is uncertain. It's, it's unclear. So again, that's the whole monkeypox story. So that, let's look at the diagnosis. Ah, here we go. They diagnosed uh, the samples based on... That should be a PCR test. The PCR test. Ah, the PRC test, yes. Slight typo there. Um, so here we go. That's the, uh, the medical journal there. And this is what they say. Uh, in 2003, uh, it appears that 35 laboratory-confirmed cases all involved the PCR test. Okay, so all of the laboratory-confirmed cases back then in 2003 involved the PCR test. So let's take a closer look at that. And so that leads us to what, it's based on what? What is the PCR based on? A 1993 uh, sample, an alleged genomic sequence of a varola virus. Okay, not a monkeypox virus, but apparently this is a, a gen genomic fragments uh, were sort of spliced together here. And so they claim that they had sequenced a viral genome, uh, referring to what they caught in 1993. No virus uh, was demonstrated either, simply an assertion that it was isolated from material from a patient in India in 1967. <laughs> so the whole 2003 monkeypox outbreak really is based on some patient where they took some material in 1967. It's incredible, isn't it? But it goes on. So in none of these experiments did they confirm, uh, perform any controls by seeing what sequences can be detected from other human-derived scabs or similar specimens from unwell individuals. So therefore, there's no real evidence of a replication-competent intracellular parasite that infects and causes disease in a host. It just, it just isn't there. So, and we go on, and again, excuse the typo, that's a PCR test, not a PRC test. I think PRC stands for something else. It might be a country. Yes. So it's, it's unclear how they established they could be diagnosing anyone with monkeypox by using a PCR test. This PCR test can only have been cal calibrated to sequences of unproven provenance. The same problem with COVID-19, which we covered. So, and it doesn't matter what kind of analytical specificity their PCR protocol had. Um, there was no established diagnostic specificity. It is not a medical diagnostic tool, again. Yeah. So it all is hinging on the PCR test uh, once again. So here's more evidence from 2003. There's the photographs, okay? Now, you see the African one, and then look at the U.S. and the, the two from, the, from America. Do they look anything like the photograph from the African uh, child there? Mm. Probably not. Not not even close. I mean, you, you, you're looking at two different things there. But that's basically the CDC's case right there. So it's not very strong. So the natural reservoir of monkeypox remains unknown, they admit. However, African rodents and non-human primates like monkeys may, har may, may. harbor mm -hmm. the virus in infected people. According to their, their own science, no human could pass it on to another human. This is a huge problem when you're talking about the way the narrative has been constructed now yes. with monkeypox as this sort of all singing and dancing virus. And let me just remind you, 
that reflects exactly what's in the One Health uh, agenda here. The zoonotic spillover theory, transmission of pathogens from wild animals to humans, is pushed onto the public, forcing us to accept the idea that we are at constant risk from the animal world and, of course, the environment, and that we should be grateful to have big pharma and generous philanthropists like Bill Gates coming to the rescue to save us from the zoonotic spillover. That's the whole basis, the underpinning of the One Health agenda. So, and we go back to the origins here, the historic patterns of the alleged monkey pox virus make no sense, say the authors, uh, Sam, Dr. Sam and Dr. Mark Bailey. Um, and so why, why a decade or two decades between so-called outbreaks? So it does, that doesn't make sense either. Still vague, unproven hypothesis by the CDC, but our whole policy is based on this. Mm. So, and we go on. So these are the final conclusions of, of their report. There's no evidence presented by a uh, of a physical particle that meets the definition of a virus, the scientific definition of a virus, not in the CDC study. So there's no evidence of anything transmitting between humans in the CDC study, which we've demonstrated, and there's no way to confirm a diagnosis of monkeypox unless you believe in clinically unvalidated tests like PCR kits, um, which have been produced. So monkeypox pandemic equals PCR pandemic. And why is this a big problem? Because look at this. We've been inundated with stories like this. Monkeypox and gay men separating the stigma from health advice. So there's, they're, again, setting up the gay community like they did with the HIV AIDS scare to stigmatize uh, gay people and put them in this kind of corner on this to say, well, the next thing is they're the ones spreading it. And so we need to sort of regulate them more. And then you see stories like this. This literally just came out this morning. WHO looks into reports that monkeypox virus is in semen. So they're, they're setting this up as the new sort of gay disease, quite possibly. Mm. But, you know, the cases, they say, are higher using these PCR tests among the gay community. And I have to point out, that is the most tested uh, demographic mm. um, in terms of STDs and all that. They get tested more than anybody. So it's going to, when we learn from COVID, it's going to produce more positives the more you test. I mean, they're by orders of magnitude tested more. Mm. So again, we're seeing the same sort of um, media campaign and social campaign to demonize or ostracize the gay community on this, like with HIV. By the way, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. outlined this in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, in great detail, how they fixed the sort of the whole HIV campaign and how it was uh, captured by Big Pharma or driven by Big Pharma. Um, very similar. So we're at the early stages of this one. So back to the origins here. You remember this document? Yes. You guys covered this. We covered it. And the NTI paper. Now, a lot of people in alternative media uh, grabbed onto this and said, wow, wow, this is a tabletop exercise. This is like Event 201. Yes, it was like Event 201. But, uh, but a lot of people missed the importance of this. They said, well, they're predicting an outbreak. And here's the outbreak now in the exact time they predicted it. But what is the real thing to worry about with this tabletop exercise, it's this. And this was, look at their objectives. They're right here. Aggressive measures to slow virus transmission by shutting down mass gatherings, imposing social distance measures, implementing mask mandates, large-scale testing, contact tracing. We know what all this looks like, right? Scaled up, uh, scaling up their healthcare systems, uh, okay? New vaccines, okay? Now, countries that don't comply with their restrictions and medical interventions will be far, quote, far worse off. This all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? 
And now they're boasting in this paper that COVID vaccines will exceed 150 billion, sorry, missing billion market uh, in 2021. So that, what is that? That's basically, again, that's the One Health global health security agenda. That's, that's an actual thing. This is in all these sort of stakeholders organizations. It's called the GHSA. And everything, every bullet point I just showed you is basically the pillars of the global health security. So I encourage people, go look at this uh, article here at 21st Century by Freddie Ponton. It's long, but it has absolutely everything in it that you need to know about the One Health agenda. This is the framework uh, for this sort of globalist takeover, the pri uh, public-private partnership takeover of, of the health industry and government. And then this is the other thing about the NTI paper. People said, uh, biological weapon. You notice the symbol, mm. attack. Now, what is that? Does that mean that there's, the, that I, I personally think bioweapon, are you serious? Is this a PSYOP? Yes. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Knowing what we know now after looking through this research, after combing through this story, this is what it looks like. This NTI paper, the bioweapon side, um, I don't know what the purpose of that. Maybe it's an unintentional PSYOP or an intentional PSYOP. I don't know. Mm. But it doesn't look like this is a biological weapons attack. But a lot of people think it is because of the NTI paper mm. that was released a year ago. So that's caused a whole ripple effect in the alternative media, and people have run with that um, idea. But it's, it's As they did with COVID as well, to some degree. Exactly as they did with COVID, with the lab leak, yes. which is really, in my opinion, a massive red herring. So this is what you need to pay attention to right here. FDA, vaccine approval, smallpox, and rare monkeypox. I like the rare bit. Reminds me of novel coronavirus, rare monkeypox. So it's vaccine fast track approval. So this isn't even a, a monkeypox specific vaccine. It's allegedly a smallpox specific vaccine, but they say it'll work. Don't worry, it'll work for monkeypox. What kind of science is this? I don't know, but we're, we're meant to accept it as totally legitimate. And of course, the UK government is right on it. Look at this, monkeypox vaccination recommendations for the use of pre and post exposure vaccines during a monkeypox incident. So th this is the One Health security agenda in action right here. This is coming from our new agency, mm -hmm. right? The Health Security Agency. Yeah. This is the Department of Homeland Security uh, for viruses apparently, but let's take a look at here. So last thoughts on this. It, and here's the thing you got to understand. It is a fundamental mistake to attribute a person's illness to a supposed virus as the subsequent treatments don't address the underlying issues. That's the big danger. And I think we should have learned that lesson with COVID. And, but this is what they're going to keep doing. This is what the system, the machine, the global machine seems to, seems to keep doing. And look at this. They haven't missed a step, Mike, here. The UK Health Security Agency, it's not too late to get boosted. This is recently, I think, in this week. And they're saying uh, it reduces the risk of spreading it to others, does it? And it means that you're less likely to get seriously ill. Is, really? that, is, is that true? Book an appointment online. So what, what is their job, the UK Health Security Agency? Are they a marketing arm of the pharmaceutical industry? Because it certainly looks like it. But they're, go, back, go flash that image back up again. And uh, you see they've got the rainbow yes. going on the logo. So they're suitably woke. So that's the story of monkeypox. So I hope that uh, that was educational. I hope everybody learned something. Do follow up. That's, again, an excellent article by Sam Bailey. And all the CDC links are in that article as well. 
but uh, start asking questions about the actual provenance of the monkeypox story, the origins of monkeypox. And what you'll find is it's really hard to actually find any actual monkeypox. Okay, let's move on to uh, climate change. And uh, well, the BBC headline today is climate change colon rising sea levels threaten 200,000 England properties. This was all over uh, most of the mainstream press this morning. I chose the BBC, but well, why not? Uh, and what are they saying? Nearly 200,000 properties in England may have to be abandoned due to rising sea levels by 2050. This is because of, this is in a study published by the journal Ocean and Coastal Management. And they're saying about a third of England's coast will be put under pressure by sea level rise. Uh, it uh, just won't be possible to hold the line uh, all around the coast, uh, says Paul Sawyers, the author of the report. He said, these, there are, uh, sorry, these are places we're going to hold and these are places we're not going to hold. So we need to, be, uh, to have an honest debate around how we're gonna do that. Uh, and support communities where they are affected. So the question is, Patrick, uh, is this about sea level rise? Uh, what evidence have we that there's been any sea level rise? Uh, what evidence have we that there's going to be any sea level rise? Or is it much more likely to be this uh, coastal area? This is the Daily Mail from 2007. Coastal areas will be abandoned as flood defenses are cut back. So in fact, uh, the sea, which has a tradition of attacking coastlines, uh, has been defended through sea defences. They have been built sea walls and other defences. Uh, and even in 2007, the British government was saying, we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, we have a policy for that. Now, what's interesting is this mail article from 2007 uh, had to be grabbed from the Wayback Machine, because if you look for this article now, uh, this is what you get, uh, a blank page. Uh, but if anybody thinks, well, hold on, that was 2007. Uh, they've probably abandoned this policy by now and doing something else. Well, no, here is uh, uh, from February 2021, implementing managed retreat, because this is what it's called, managed retreat. Are they rewilding the coastline? They are rewilding the ah, coastline. So implementing managed retreat is a strategic flood and coastal defense option. Um, it's too expensive, basically, to run coastal defenses anymore. Uh, we've traditionally done that for many decades, but... Uh, you can't have the working and middle-class people enjoying living on coastlines. Coastline, no, no, you can't. You really you can't. don't deserve it. Well, but aside from that, uh, you know, if, if coastlines aren't seen to be eroding, which is a natural process, hasn't happened since the beginning of time, but if, if uh, coasts can't be seen to be eroding, then how can they push the, uh, the narrative of rising sea levels and the attack of rising sea levels on uh, the coastlines? But so they keep, they keep pushing it. That's, that's the big rally cry for climate change. That's one of the top three, isn't it? Sea levels are rising. I, where, where are they? Are they rising? Where are they rising? Nobody's seen them rising. So the bottom line here is that managed retreat is an economic policy decision by the British government. It's not because of uh, what may or may not be happening uh, clim uh, in terms of climate uh, or sea levels. Um, it is purely a decision of policy. Where have we seen that before? Uh, policy. 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 I thought it was an act of God, Mike. Yes. It's policy. It's government policy, of course. Of course. Um, let's move on to other policies. And uh, well, is it a man's world? Well, look, as a man, I am so proud to see us winning the gold here in this race. This is from, I mean, really just showing these women who's boss. Um, so do you think it's a good idea to have men competing, biological men competing Oh, no, so let me rephrase that. Let me no, no, you think you need to be careful here, no, Patrick. No. Is it a good idea to have trans women, which are basically 
men who uh, believe that they're women, okay, competing against real women or biological females in sporting competitions, right? That could get you in trouble if you, in some quarters or whatever. So there's a, thank God for this, Mike, there's a poll that was just put, come out uh, in America. Most Americans oppose trans athletes in female sports poll finds. So if you have that fringe view that you thought was a fringe view, that uh, muscular men who are um, dressed or pretending to be women um, should be competing and, and basically as ringers in women's sports, that's no longer a fringe view. You're in the majority. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that there's been much more incidents of this in the United States, particularly in college sport than there has been in the UK. So far, we've had a couple of stories about uh, cycling competitions with with trans cyclists taking part in women's, uh, at least attempting to take part in women's cycling competition. But we haven't had this type of argument in this country yet to the degree that you have in the United States. Because, because they've risen to the top of the ranks in the US. Right. Le Leah Thomas, formerly, I don't know his previous name was, but anyway, he's, he's in there with the girls breaking all the records. Right. And that really accelerated. That probably affected the result of this poll, um, actually. But what's really interesting, here's the interesting bit. It's in the fine print of this report by the Washington Post. We'll just go back up on screen uh, with this report. And this is the really interesting bit. And I think here's where the value is. And if you, if you scroll further down, a 2021 Gallup telephone poll found that 0.7% of adults are identifying as transgender, while a slightly larger percentage identify as gay, 1.5%, lesbian, 1%. So we're under the impression that this is a huge lobby that this represents a whole lot of people mm. in society. The reality is it doesn't. It's, it's, it's less than a fringe minority, but yet this fringe minority is dictating an entire political agenda mm. uh, in terms of you know, reforming language and institutions and uh, really disrupting uh, the institutions and the way people are doing things and so forth. And, and, and hijacking meetings and brigading and attacking it's a very small group of people, but the, the actual people who identify as transgender, gay, and lesbian are small, but their support group in terms of the left wing, let's say, or progressive politics is big. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones basically doing all the brigading. So isn't it, it's interesting though. So is, it, is this a problem that's representative mm. uh, of the general population? And it's not. Mm. So why are we rearranging the rules of society for you know, less than 1%. That's uh, a good question. So, Okay, well, let's let's end. It's uh, Technology Week in the UK, Patrick, and uh, Boris Johnson was uh, giving a speech a couple of days, welcoming uh, people from all around the world because Britain is uh, really the heart of technology and AI. But uh, uh, the nail here has what they're describing as an exclusive. That's right, that's right. This is uh, exclusive. Now, this is a fired Google engineer, or suspended, sorry. And they're saying uh, it's intensely worried people are going to be afraid of it. He's talking about the AI. Uh, suspended Google engineer reveals sentient artificial intelligence uh, AI told him um, it has emotions and wants engineers to ask permission before doing experiments on it. Now, that's all fine, that's all well and good, but the real question we wanna know is, is if it's sentient, is it woke? That's what we wanna know. 
Yes. Is it woke? If is this AI woke or not? That's that's all anybody really wants to know, right? Well, I'm because then you could find out how really dangerous it is. It is, yes, <laughs> indeed. Okay. Well, look, we have to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you very much, Vanessa, for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes on the uh, UK column uh, live stream uh, for some extra. Uh, but otherwise, we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Friday.